Mark 11. We're going to be in, begin in verse 12. I'm going to read to chapter, I mean, verse 33. You, you hope I read to chapter 33, right? There isn't 33 chapters in Mark, but I'm going to read to verse 33, though we may not get to verse 33 today. And if we don't, no big deal. We'll pick it up wherever I leave off next week. So we'll see what the Lord has. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12. Now the next day, when they had come out of Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he had came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So they came to Jerusalem. And then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves." And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. And when evening had come, he went out of the city. Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. For surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Then they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority do you do these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one question then. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people, for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So in verse 12, it says, Now the next day when they came out of Bethany. This is the day after the feast. We looked at the feast. We saw this in John's Gospel, chapter 12. When it records that Jesus went to the house of Lazarus, the house of Mary and Martha, and Mary anointed the feet of Jesus. She broke the alabaster jar, anointed the feet of Jesus. 
It's very possible that after that feast, that that actually was the eve of the Sabbath, and the next day Jesus spent the Sabbath resting because by law you were forbidden to travel more than a mile journey on the Sabbath. And more than likely, if the next day was the Sabbath, Jesus spent that day in rest, honoring the Sabbath as his Father had commanded. Whatever, whether this is the day after the Sabbath or the immediate day following that triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Mark records for us here, now the next day when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And Jesus looked ahead and he saw this fig tree full of leaves. This is about the time of year that Jesus would have been walking into Jerusalem. This is the time of the Passover. So actually the Passover this year is going to be April 22nd. Easter comes early this year. And the Passover and our celebration of Easter usually are pretty close on the calendar. But the church set Easter to be on a certain Sunday every year so that we would have that celebration always on a Sunday because we know that Jesus was resurrected on the first day of the week or on the day of the week we call Sunday. But Passover is a feast that is to be celebrated on the 15th of Nisan according to the Jewish calendar. So that could fall on a Monday, that could fall on a Wednesday, or it could fall on a Sunday. But it was this spring of the year that Jesus was, late winter, early spring, when these events are taking place. And we see when Jesus sees this fig tree full of leaves, he gets to it and there are no figs on the tree. And the Bible tells us that Jesus cursed the fig tree and that it immediately withered. Mark is very detailed in his account. You'll see that in Mark's gospel, Mark presents a lot of things chronologically. If you read this account in the other gospels, you'll see that they just lump it together. He came into Jerusalem, triumphal entry. He sees the fig tree. He curses it. It withers. But Mark is very clear that Jesus curses it one day. But it is the next day when his disciples question him about the withering of the fig tree. And so we're going to look at this event, the cursing of the fig tree, and we're going to look at this and we're going to talk about the significance of this event. Because Jesus did not do anything without significance. Jesus wasn't mad because he was hungry and there were no figs on the tree, so to get back at the tree, he cursed it. Please don't reduce Jesus down to somebody who operates like, like we do. That was not why Jesus cursed the fig tree. The fig tree had great significance for what Jesus was getting ready to do. What was Jesus getting ready to do? Jesus was getting ready to celebrate the Passover because Jesus is our Passover. He was not going to just celebrate the Passover. Jesus was going to fulfill what God instituted 1,500 years previous in Egypt when God commanded Moses and the children of Israel to, to kill a lamb and to paint the, 
doorpost of their homes with the blood of the lamb so that when the angel of death passed through the land of Egypt, it would pass over every home that had the blood of the lamb painted on the lintels or the doorpost of the home. And that event that began in Egypt as God was delivering his people from slavery in Egypt, that event was a foreshadowing of the real, the true Passover that would come one day. Jesus is that Passover. So Jesus isn't just being obedient and getting ready to celebrate the feast like he has done all of his life. He is getting ready to fulfill the feast by being our Passover. So as he's marching in, as he's walking into Jerusalem that next morning, coming from Bethany, and he sees the fig tree, Jesus knows exactly what he's getting ready to do. Now, he's days before the Passover, but he's going to go into the temple, and he's going to cleanse the temple. And the act of cleansing the temple was an act of judgment about what was happening in the temple, but the cursing of the fig tree was a judgment also. In fact, it was, the, it was the only miraculous thing Jesus did that actually was an act of judgment. And he did it on purpose, and he did it very specifically here just days before the Passover. So that day, Jesus cursed the fig tree, and the Bible says that his disciples heard what Jesus spoke to the tree, but they continued their journey into Jerusalem. They went into the temple. They began to drive out the money changers and those who bought and sold in the temple. And Jesus teaches in the temple until evening, and then the scripture tells us that Jesus departed. He left the city. And then that next day, as they're coming in, Peter sees the fig tree withered, and he says, Rabbi, This is the tree that you cursed, and it's already withered. So let's stop there, and let's talk about the significance or the implications of the cursing of the fig tree. First, I want to talk about the connection between the fig tree and the fall. The connection between the fig tree and the fall. Turn in your Bible to Genesis, or you can follow along up there on the... Here's a trivia quiz for you. How many trees were named in the garden? How many were named? How many do we see named in the account of Scripture? How many? Yeah, there's three. We often forget about the third one. We always think about the tree of life, and we always think mostly about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the tree that we were commanded not to eat from that we ate from, that caused sin and the curse to fall on all creation. And we know there was the tree of life that we were allowed to eat from, but then God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden, and he said, lest they eat from the tree of life and become like us and live forever, let us drive man out of the garden. The us doesn't refer to God and angels. The us refers to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is the Trinity. There is the triune Godhead when God said, let us make man in our image. That's not God and the angels. That is the triune Godhead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
And it was the triune God that drove man out of the garden and said, now that he's eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, now that the curse has come, now that he has entered into death, let us drive him out of the garden so that he doesn't eat from the tree of life and become live like live forever become like us and live forever in what in a state of eternal death and separation from god it was the grace of god that drove man out of the garden it was the grace of god that put a cherubim with a flaming sword to guard the entrance to the garden and said the only way you're going to get to the tree of life is to be struck down that was the grace of god and so when we go to the garden, let's, let's go there. Genesis chapter 3. We'll make this short and sweet. Let's read verse 7. Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the forbidden tree. Verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. The Bible is specific. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. So Adam and Eve sewed fig leaves together, made themselves coverings, and hid from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. This was man's first attempt to cover his sin by his own works. This is significant. It was not his last attempt. This is this is our default nature. This is our nature of sin and death. Our nature of sin and death is to try to cover our sinfulness with our own works. And it cannot be done. There is no work you can do that will cover your sinfulness. There is no work that you can do that will hide your sin from God. And so man tries to cover his sin by his own works, but it was an utter and a complete failure. And here's what we learn, that sin always extracts a price. The Bible teaches us this, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Leviticus 17.11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. This is reaffirmed in our New Testament letter to the Hebrews. Now, while you're in Genesis chapter 3, look over from verse 7, look over to verse 21. So Adam and Eve sin. They sew together fig leaves. They try to cover their sinfulness. They try to hide from God. God finds them. God pronounces the curse. He pronounces the curse on the serpent. He pronounces the curse on the woman. And then he pronounces the curse on Adam. And in verse 21, it says, Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord made tunics of skin and clothed them. That doesn't mean they were spiritual beings. They were light beings and God put flesh and bone on them. That's not what that means. They were flesh and bone. What it means is God fulfilled what, what the law declared before the law was ever given to man. God knew. What is Jesus called? He's called the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the world. Jesus 
crucified is not plan B because man messed things up in the garden. Jesus crucified was the plan of God. It was always the plan of God. It was the eternal plan of God before there ever was an earth or a garden or a tree or a serpent. This was the plan of God. And God knew that his son would die on behalf of sinful man and shed his blood. This is why Jesus is called in the book of Revelation, the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. This is why John the Baptist recorded in, Mark's go- in Matthew's gospel chapter 3, saw Jesus come, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Up until Jesus coming, what was, what was happening God in his grace covered man's sin. And what did God require for that sin to be covered? He required blood. One of the most bloody places you could ever be was in the temple or in the tabernacle because they sacrificed animals multiple times daily. They sacrificed at minimum a lamb every morning and a lamb every afternoon. Every day of the week without fail. Think of it. By the time Jesus celebrates the Passover, we have 1,500 years where there was commanded to be a sacrifice every morning and every afternoon. That doesn't even count all the sacrifices for sin that you and I were required to bring into the tabernacle or bring into the temple to cover our sinfulness So God gave us the blood of animals to cover our sinfulness, but the blood of animals never took away our sin. It only covered it. And every animal sacrificed in the tabernacle, every animal sacrificed in the temple foreshadowed the Lamb of God that would come one day and ultimately give His life so that our sins would not just be covered, but so that our sins would be taken away. This is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So we see that Adam and Eve attempt to cover themselves, but they can't. So God sacrifices animals. Blood is shed, and he takes the skin of those animals, and he covers Adam and Eve's nakedness with the skin of those sacrificed animals. So that Adam and Eve and all of humanity after that would understand that sin extracts a price. There is a consequence to sin. And sin always brings death in some form or some fashion. It just does. It might not be physical death, but it nonetheless will always bring death. So we see that Sin brought the shedding of blood and God himself covered the sin of man through the sacrifice that would foreshadow the perfect lamb of God that would one day take away our sin. Jesus cursed man's attempt to cover his own sin by his own work. The fig tree that Adam and Eve used to try to cover their sin is the same fig tree that God cursed that Jesus cursed and he said let no one ever eat fruit from you again it was Jesus cursing man's attempt to save himself by his own works that's what the cursing of the fig tree represented because in the very beginning when man 
failed. This is what man attempted to do. He sewed fig leaves together to try to cover his sinfulness. And he hid from God as though we can hide from God. Jesus coming into Jerusalem as the Lamb of God, getting ready to be slain, getting ready to go to the cross, sees the fig tree and he curses it. Now there's something else that the sig- the, I believe the fig tree is symbolic of. I believe the fig tree is also symbolic of that forbidden tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We don't know what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was. We don't know. You know, we always use an apple, but that's really kind of silly. Uh, it wasn't an apple tree. I would say if we were going to put any, any name on it, I would say a fig tree could we have as good or better an argument to make it a fig tree as we would an apple tree or an apricot tree or a peach tree or a pear tree or whatever. It doesn't really matter, though. The point is, it doesn't matter what the fruit was. What matters is God says, don't touch it. And we touched it. And the, and the only reason we could even speculate is because for some reason, God in the third chapter of Genesis in the 21st verse I mean, in the seventh verse, he names the fig tree. He, 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 he inspires Moses to write down that it was a fig tree that Adam and Eve used to cover their nakedness. So God inspired the fig tree to be used by Adam and Eve in this attempt to cover their sin. Now, whether the fig tree was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's really irrelevant. But what is relevant is that man ate from this tree in rebellion against God and he brought the curse upon all creation. And that man has lived from the knowledge of good and evil since that time, attempting to become righteous by his ability to manage good and evil. Are you hearing me, church? This is is man in his sin nature. Man in his sin nature attempts to become righteous through his ability to manage good and evil. If I can just be good enough, God will accept me. Here's the gospel. You can't be good enough. That might not sound like good news to you, but it really is good news. The good news is, try as you might, you cannot be good enough. Because if you were able to be good enough, then Jesus died for nothing. Because if you can be good enough to be accepted by God, then why did the Son of God, why did the sinless Son of God have to come and die for your sins and my sins? If there was even one man that could be good enough, why would Jesus have to die? There was no man good enough. How do we know that? Because that's what the Bible teaches us. Let me read it to you. I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to take God's word for it. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. I'll stop. So when the rich young ruler encounters Jesus and says, good teacher, Jesus stops him and says, why? Why do you call me good? For there is none good but one, and that is God. The rich young ruler didn't know who he was talking to. He thought he was talking to a good rabbi, popular rabbi that was going to affirm his righteousness because he had kept all the commandments. 
Jesus didn't deny that he had kept all the commandments, but he said, you lack one thing, go and sell all that you have, give it to the poor and come follow me. Now, Jesus didn't say it in direct language, but here's what Jesus was saying. You've allowed your wealth to become your idol, to become your God. Go repent of your idolatry, sell your wealth, get rid of your wealth, and come and follow me. I am the one that you must worship. I am the God that you should be idolizing. Not your wealth, not your power, not your money. You think you've kept all the commandments, but you have not. And the Bible says the rich young ruler went away sad because he had great possessions. So here is this tree that God says, don't eat from it, and we eat from it. We don't know what kind of tree it was, but we do know that man took the leaves from this fig tree in the garden and they tried to cover their sinfulness. There was another tree named. It was the tree of life. That was the tree we were allowed to eat from before we fell. And so, because we ate from the wrong tree and we brought a curse upon ourselves, we have lived out of the knowledge of good and evil, trying to make ourselves righteous by our own good works. But Jesus came as the tree of life to redeem man and to remove the curse from his new creation. So our life and righteousness was never from our ability to manage the knowledge of good and evil. We must be found in Christ. That's what the Bible teaches us. We must be found in Christ and our righteousness is only Through faith in Christ, this is the righteousness that is from God by faith. This is what Paul writes in in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. He he writes in verse 8, Philippians 3, 8, Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. The cursing of the fig tree pictures the removal of one tree for another, that we may now approach Christ, who is the tree of life. But in approaching Christ, we must be struck down. And this is what God told Adam and Eve. You try to come back and partake of this tree of life, that angel with the flaming sword, he's going to strike you down. Here's the reality. Christ is the tree of life, and before we can partake of him, we must be struck down. That cherubim with the flaming sword, you know what he pictured? You know what he represented for us? The cross. Jesus said, if any man desires to come after me, be my disciple, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. Paul said, I die daily. He wasn't being morbid. Paul understood that in order for me to live, I must die. And God put that cherubim there to guard the entrance of the garden And that cherubim was a picture of the cross. Because until we are crucified with Christ, we cannot be raised up in his life. 
Before there can be a resurrection, there has to be a death. You can't get to heaven without dying, one way or the other. Christ will raise us up in new life, and we will ever eat the fruit of his resurrected life. We will never again eat the fruit from the cursed tree, for we have Christ, the tree of life, in our midst forever. It is only the good work of Christ that saves us, and it is his life alone that sustains us. Where is your faith? Who are you looking to? for your salvation. We all know what the right answer is. The right answer is Christ. But how do you unconsciously live your life? What are the things you do? What are your thought? What's your thought process? Are you fully trusting Christ? Are you putting all of your weight on Christ? Or are you trusting in your ability to make yourself acceptable to God? Is there fear in you that one day God will reject you because you haven't been good enough? If that fear is in you, then you are not trusting fully upon Christ because here's what the Bible teaches plainly from beginning to end. And it pretty much says it like this. You just need to realize this and get over it. You can't be good enough. You won't be good enough. If you think you might be good enough, understand you will not be. Then what's my hope? Christ is my hope. He alone was good enough. He alone was good. He is the only man that ever walked this planet sinless, perfect before his father. He is the only man that ever walked and fulfilled and kept all the points of the law. He is the lawgiver. He is our law keeper. It is impossible for us to keep God's law. God gave us the law and he gave it to us knowing it would be impossible for us to keep it. And he wanted us to come to realize that. God wanted us to realize, God, what you're demanding of me is impossible. I can't do this. And God says, exactly. Now you're starting to understand. What do you mean, God? What I mean is you can't do it. What you have to do is put your faith in the one who will do it. Who is that? That is my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your faith in him. Well, when you put your faith in Jesus, what does that mean about your life? What should your life look like? It better look like Jesus. It needs to look like Jesus. But, but you just said, I can't make it look like Jesus. Yeah, you can't. But he can't. He knows how to conform you. He knows how to mold you and shape you. The question is, what is the desire in your heart? Is the desire in your heart to be conformed to the world? Or is the desire in your heart to be conformed to Christ? The Bible says, if you've been born again, if Christ lives in you and he's given you a new heart, that new heart of yours is going to desire to be like Jesus. But you're still tempted to want to be like the world because we live in the world, though we're not of the world. And the world pushes against us. And the world, world pulls on us. And the devil flashes temptation all around us. And our flesh is weak. But the spirit is strong. So what are you going to give place to? Your flesh or the spirit? 
give place to the Spirit. This is what Paul writes in Galatians. Walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. How are you going to do that? You're going to do it by the grace of God. You're going to do it by seeing your hopeless inability and falling upon the grace, falling at the foot of the cross and saying, God, I can't do this. I've got to have your grace. And you know what? When that happens, he will give you his grace to walk in the Spirit so that you do not fulfill the lust of the flesh. What happens, Pastor Jeff, when I stumble and fall and I sin? You thank God for his forgiveness in Jesus. You get up and you keep moving forward. Knowing that you only got up by the grace of God. Knowing that you deserve death, but God didn't give you death. He gave you grace and mercy. And what does that do? That causes thankfulness. It should cause thankfulness to explode from your heart. Because God didn't give you what you truly deserve. But he gave you mercy. And he gave you grace. When Jesus cursed the fig tree, that's what he was cursing. He was cursing that tree that brought the curse. He was cursing that knowledge of good and evil that we think we can live under and live through. And by managing good and evil, we can make ourselves acceptable to God. That's what Jesus cursed when he cursed the fig tree. It's only the good work of Christ that saves us. It is his life alone that sustains us. Now, here's another thing. There's a connection between the fig tree and the nation of Israel. Jesus can have more than one thing that he's doing in a single act. There can be more than one implication in a single act. So there's no doubt there's a connection between the fig tree and the fall, but there's also a connection between the fig tree and the nation of Israel. The fig tree has always been a symbolic figure associated with Israel. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 10, John the Baptist says this, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus cursed the fig tree and it withered and no doubt was eventually cut down because it would never bear fruit again. That's what Jesus said. This was not, listen to me church, this was not a sign that God was rejecting the nation of Israel, but it was that the nation had rejected Jesus. And out of that rejection, God would create for himself a chosen generation, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a peculiar people that would show forth the praise of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's the scripture. That's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Listen, if you are in Christ today, you are that holy nation. You are that royal priesthood. You are that peculiar people that was brought forth to show his praise in all the earth. The cursing of the fig tree pointed to the judgment that was coming upon the nation and upon the world. Jesus declares in John 12, 31, this is recorded. Jesus says these words, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Now, he said, now is the judgment of this world. Hours before his crucifixion, hours before he is arrested and taken to be crucified, 
Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. We read our Bibles incorrectly. We are so caught up with looking what's going to happen in the future. We have misunderstood and totally missed what God has already done in Jesus. And it's a good thing he did it. He said, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Your enemy, the devil, he is defeated. He has been cast out. He has no power over you. Don't fear him. Don't fear anything he can do. He is a pawn in the hand of God. He can't do anything that God doesn't allow him to do. He is powerless before God. And Jesus accomplished that judgment in the cross. This, this, these are the words of Jesus. Believe Jesus. Don't believe what man says. Believe what Jesus says. It pointed to the judgment wrought in the cross, but it is the cross that has given, us, has given way to resurrection and a new creation. There is no resurrection, there is no creation, new creation without the cross. The cross was the way. The cross opened the door for resurrection, it opened the door for a new creation. By faith, we are crucified with Christ and raised in his life as a new creation. This is what Paul writes in Galatians 2.20. Remember that cherubim holding that flaming sword that says, you come near this tree, I'll strike you down. This is exactly what Paul refers to in Galatians 2.20 when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. You notice, you English majors, I have been. That's not future tense, that's past tense. Paul didn't say, I will one day be. He said, I have have been crucified with Christ. If you are in Jesus right now, you can say right with the Apostle Paul, I have been, past tense, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, where? In the Son of God. You might live in a house in Taylor, Texas, but your life is in Christ. You might be in this building today worshiping God, but you are in the presence of the Father because you are in Christ right now. That's not what I teach. That's what the Bible teaches so plain that you have to be blind to miss it. And this is why Jesus opened blind eyes. Jesus opened blind eyes when he walked on the earth because he was teaching us that we are all blind until he opens our eyes. And you need to see that you are in Christ now and that God did that because he brought a judgment Upon this world, he brought a judgment and cast out the ruler of this world. And through the cross, he opened the way for resurrection and a new creation. Paul writes in his letter to the Galatians, he said, circumcision or uncircumcision does not matter. The only thing that matters is a new creation. In other words, not one day when God makes a new heaven and a new earth. That's not what Paul was talking about. 
Paul said, the only thing that matters is, are you in Christ right now? Are you a new creation right now? Because he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, if any man, if any woman, if any child, if anyone be in Christ, they are, present tense, right now, they are a new creation. Old things have passed away. The old has passed away. Behold, all, all things have become new. Verse 18 begins with this. Now all things are of God. That is your reality. That is the reality now in Christ. We who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Who has made both one. God has created in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. That's from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13. We could read all the way to the end of the chapter there to verse 22. That's directly quoted from the scripture. God has created in himself one new man from the two. What two? The Jew and the Gentile are now made one in Christ, reconciled to God in one body through the cross. The curse became the cure. Did you hear me, church? The curse became the cure. So that God could create in himself one new man. The curse became the cure, and the crucified and risen Christ became our peace, and we, his people, have become a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. curse of the fig tree marks an end of the old and a beginning of the new. One new and holy nation in Christ. All right, we're going to stop there. So next week, we're going to pick up from Mark 11, starting in verse 15. And we're going to look at the cleansing of the temple. And this is all related. So we're going to see that when Jesus, he's walking into Jerusalem, he curses the fig tree, he walks right on, he goes into the city, he goes right into the temple. And when he gets into the temple, he immediately begins to drive out the money changers and the people buying and selling. He makes that declaration that my father's house is a house of prayer for all nations. And there's a reason why he says what he says and does what he does, and it is absolutely related to the cursing of that fig tree. So you guys come up. We're going to get ready to come to the table now. This table was instituted as a result of what we commonly refer to as the Last Supper, which Jesus called the Passover meal. Jesus ate the Passover with his disciples. And it was in celebration of the Passover, Jesus knowing that he was that lamb that was going to be slain for the sins of the world, not just for Jews, but also for Gentiles.
Paul writes in his letter to the Corinthians that as often as we come to this table, we proclaim the death of the Lord even until he comes again. This is not a table for saints. This is a table for sinners saved by grace. This isn't a table that requires your perfection. It is a table that commemorates his perfection. This is a table of celebration, celebrating his death, because by his death, your sins were washed away. It commemorates his coming again, because in his resurrection, you live eternally And your hope is not eternal one day. Your hope is eternal right now. Eternal life is not what you're going to get one day. Eternal life is what you have right now in Jesus. That's why the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There's no delay there. The moment you step out of this world, out of this age, this material realm, and you step into glory... You will be absent from your body, but you will be present with the Lord. And that's possible because of what this table represents. Because Jesus gave his body and shed his blood. And you might say, how do I become a part of that? Trust him. Don't make it more complicated than the Bible does. Trust him. What does that mean? Call upon his name. Is it that simple? Yes, it's that simple. It's that simple. How do I know I really have faith? Have faith, you really have faith. Trust that you really trust. But I'm not perfect, no one is. Only Jesus. Keep looking to Him in your imperfection. Keep trusting Him in your imperfection. Keep asking Him to mold you and to shape you and to conform you to the image, His glorious image. You can't do that. Only He can do that. And to prove that He is not only willing to do it, but He is doing it, the Bible says He gave to you His Holy Spirit. Jesus lives in you right now by the Holy Spirit. If you are trusting Him, if you've called upon His name, The Spirit of God lives on the inside of you. The Bible calls you the house of God. The Bible calls you living stones being built up into a holy habitation of God in the Spirit. Christ lives in you by the Spirit. The same Spirit, Romans chapter 8 tells us, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in your mortal body, not your one day glorified body. It dwells in your mortal body right now. The very same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in your mortal body. And it will strengthen it. It will give you the grace and the ability to walk and to live in a manner worthy of your Lord Jesus. Is that your heart's desire? Trust Him. Trust Him and come to the table.